Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, December 16th. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Thank you for joining us. In our top story tonight, we'll report on a victory in an undercover journalist's continuing quest to expose the harvest and sale of baby body parts in the abortion industry. Leslie and I will talk to Mark Lee Dixon, the architect of the Sanctuary Cities of the Unborn Movement. Priests for Life has joined nearly 50 pro-life groups in trying to put a halt on a Biden administration plan to turn VA hospitals into abortion businesses. I will discuss this and other stories in Abortion in the News. Is euthanasia a solution for poverty in Canada? We will have Alex Shadenberg with the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition shed some light on this disturbing trend in Canada. If the 2024 presidential election were held today, who would win? Teresa has this and all of the political news that occurred this week. Does fatherhood affect men's brains? Be sure to stay till the end when our guest Brad Mattis shares some amazing new research. The Center for Medical Progress, which in 2015 exposed the harvest and sale of baby body parts in the abortion industry, has won a battle with the University of Washington. Center founder and president David Delighton was sued in 2016 by the university and individuals from Planned Parenthood to prevent him from obtaining university records for its taxpayer-funded experiments on aborted babies. The university has now agreed to a settlement that calls for it to make available extensive records concerning its harvesting, use, and distribution of aborted fetuses and their organs and tissues from 2010 to the present. The university also will pay $30,000 in attorney fees to Delighton's legal team. The University of Washington for more than 50 years has operated the Birth Defects Research Laboratory, a center funded by the National Institutes of Health that harvests and distributes aborted fetal organs and tissues. Like many university hubs for fetal experimentation, the university also hosts Planned Parenthood's abortion training program called the Fellowship in Complex Family Planning. Since 2015, Planned Parenthood has heralded the University of Washington program as its gold standard for supplying baby body parts for government-sponsored experiments. Delighton's public records request sought documentation and communications concerning the relationship between Planned Parenthood and the university, the approval of fetal experimentation projects, the volume of business and kinds of fetal organs harvested and distributed at the birth defects lab, and NIH involvement in fetal exper experimentation at the university. Those records will now be made available. The public has the right to know how the government experiments on the vulnerable, Delighton said in a tweet. And I believe every one of our lives deserves to be given a chance before birth and after and not discarded as someone else's commercial or scientific commodity. Mark Lee Dixon is the head of Right to Life of East Texas and the architect of the Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn Movement. Elected officials in 60 cities and four states have declared that abortion will not take place within their borders. We've invited Mark on to catch us up with what's been happening in recent weeks. Hi, Mark. Howdy. Um, Mark, on your website, I saw that nine cities approved the sanctuary designation on Election Day. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. That, that must have been a, a record day for you, all, nine at once. It, it was a good day. Uh, I, was, I was disappointed we lost. 
we lost one. We had 10 on the ballot and uh, one of them uh, did not succeed. Um, and so that, that hurt, but we did win the majority and uh, nine out of 10. And in that one that we lost, uh, we're far from done in that city. Well, the town of Clovis, New Mexico, tabled a vote on the designation, uh, but the day before Election Day, Hobbs, New Mexico, passed the Sanctuary City Ordinance. Is it significant to have a sanctuary city in such an abortion-friendly area? Well, actually, uh, Clovis had tabled it on the 3rd, and the, the city in New Mexico that voted the day before election day actually passed it and that was hobbs new mexico and so uh we're doing a whole lot in new mexico it's hard to keep up with at times uh, but we're seeing such a great uh, groundswell of support from people that don't want abortion in their community uh, new mexico really is pro-life and uh, just loving seeing the energy in new mexico and I want the whole world to know that, you know, they don't need to believe what they're hearing in the, the news at times about uh, New Mexico being a, a lost cause. No, there are people willing to stand up and fight for their state. And New Mexico is a state that very much is pro-life. Bellevue, Nebraska is working on adopting a sanctuary city ordinance, but it's getting some pushback from abortion extremists. Tell us about the notes that were left at two churches there. Well, so there was a note left at a student center at, on the campus, the University of Nebraska at, at Omaha. And then there was a, a note left at a church, both threatening to shoot people if the Bellevue ordinance passes. And of course, the group that signed it was a group uh, known as Jane's Revenge. And so uh, they don't like the idea of Bellevue becoming a sanctuary city for the unborn. Yeah, well, obviously. Well, Mark, if pro-lifers want to start the process to get their town or city to become part of the sanctuary movement, how do they go about doing that? My encouragement is for them to sign the online petition we have at SanctuaryCitiesForTheUnborn.com. And the reason we want them to sign the online petition is that helps us understand uh, what we're walking into. Uh, we want as many signatures in the area possible before we move into that area. And I'll tell you something, we're seeing more signatures come in from uh, states like California and states like Florida than we're seeing in, in other states. And so this is something that can happen all over America, and it needs to. We need to see sanctuary cities for the unborn in California. And I, I really believe firmly that there's no state in America that we cannot do this in. Well, that's fantastic. And I want to thank you so much for joining us because I know you have a crazy travel schedule, but we really wanted to, our viewers to know about this movement and how they can be a part of it because it's a powerful way to save lives. Thanks for your work. Thank you. Thanks for joining, Mark. Stay well. Will do. Right, bye. Priests for Life is part of a coalition of nearly 50 pro-life groups asking members of the House and Senate to halt a Biden administration plan to turn Veterans Affairs hospitals into abortion businesses. For 30 years, the VA has been prohibited by law from using taxpayer dollars for abortion. 
In September, the Biden administration ignored this long-standing prohibition and issued a new rule that funds abortion for undefined health reasons for female veterans. The coalition letter reads in part, women veterans deserve quality life-affirming medical care. Instead, the VA has prioritized abortion extremism by investing in an illegal scheme to provide abortions at veterans' health facilities in violation of both state and federal law. In a related development, a VA nurse practitioner and Army veteran has sued the department, saying that being forced to provide abortion counseling or distribute abortion pills is in violation of her religious liberty. Her suit, believed to be the first filed against the VA's new abortion policy, was filed in federal court for the Western District of Texas. A state judge in Iowa on Monday upheld a permanent injunction issued in 2019 to block enforcement of a law that would protect babies as soon as a heartbeat can be detected. Iowa's recently re-elected pro-life governor, Kim Reynolds, said she will appeal to the state Supreme Court to remove the block and clear the way for enforcing a law. The decision of the people's representatives to protect life should be honored, and I believe the court will ultimately do so, Reynolds said. As long as I'm governor, I will continue to fight for the sanctity of life and for the unborn. A court in Bear County, Texas, has thrown out a lawsuit against an abortionist who intentionally violated the state's Heartbeat Act to perform an abortion beyond the legal limit. It's a strange case in that the person who filed the suit against Dr. Alan Braid is pro-abortion and was hoping his case would lead to the law being ruled unconstitutional. Instead, the suit was dismissed, with the court ruling that private citizens cannot sue abortionists unless they are directly impacted by the abortion. Braid wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post last year, revealing he intentionally violated the Texas law shortly after it took effect in September 2021. He has been performing abortions in Texas and Oklahoma since Roe v. Wade was legalized, legalized the procedure in 1973, but he's had to relocate his killing centers since those states enacted near-total bans this summer. He now kills babies in abortion-friendly Illinois and New Mexico. The suit's dismissal could be bad news for a New York state senator who proposed climate legislation modeled on the Texas law. Senator Zellner Myrie wants private citizens to be able to sue oil and gas companies for climate negligence. The Wyoming Supreme Court has until January 9th to decide whether to take up the legal challenge to the state's abortion trigger ban that was passed in March and acted for less than a day in July when a judge then ordered a preliminary injunction blocking the law's enforcement. If the state's high court takes the case, a ruling would not be expected for several months. If the court declines to hear the case, it will return to a district court. Vermont on Tuesday officially amended the state's constitution to abolish slavery and enshrine abortion. Proposal 5, which passed with 77% of the vote in the abortion-friendly state, guarantees personal reproductive liberty and says the state government cannot interfere in the reproductive health care decisions of its citizens except in cases of compelling state interest. Governor Phil Scott, a pro-abortion Republican, and Secretary of State Jim Condos formally enrolled both amendments into the state constitution. Vermont has no restrictions on abortion, and the organization Americans United for Life rated the state dead last in its state spotlight project. Vermont has an abysmal record on life, the organization says on its website, lacking the most basic legal protections for women seeking abortion and unborn children. The state health department does not even regulate abortion businesses in Vermont. The city of Moorhead, Minnesota's Human Rights Commission has named an abortion business executive director as its person of the year, drawing protests from pro-lifers in the state. Tammy Kramenacher moved the Red River Women's Clinic from its longtime location in North Dakota to Minnesota after abortion was banned in North Dakota. Brian Gibson, executive director of Pro-Life Action Ministries in Minnesota, called the honor for Kramenacher a disgusting betrayal of the commission's very name, and he asked, how can a committee of people who claim to stand for human rights ignore half of two humans involved in an abortion? 
Despite booming business in her new location, the abortion provider is continuing a lawsuit that seeks to overturn the North Dakota law, which has been blocked as the suit continues. And that's Abortion in the News. Last month, we reported on Roger Foley, a Canadian man who is being encouraged by the staff at Victoria Hospital to end his life since he was unable to pay for his health care. It appears that Canada is getting a little too comfortable killing people for reasons other than those nearing death due to terminal illnesses. To discuss Mr. Foley's case, as well as the many other reasons people in Canada are asking for assisted suicide, we have back with us tonight Alex Shaddenberg, the Executive Director of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Hey, it's great being with you. Yes, so Roger Foley, as you said, is from, uh, he was at Victoria Hospital, which is here in London, Ontario, where, is where I have my offices here. So I know a little bit about Roger, and Roger's case starts with the fact that uh, he was, he went into the hospital because he had had um, food poisoning. And so he refused to leave the hospital until he was allowed to have self-directed care, meaning that he got to hire the people who were his caregivers. And that is a provincial program we have here, but they denied it to him. They said, you have two choices. You can pay us $1,500 a day at the, at the hospital, or you can die an assisted death. Those were his two choices he was offered. Of course, he chose neither, and now they're going after him for the money. But, uh, you know, his case is just the beginning of the many cases that we're seeing of people who are in poverty, who are dying by euthanasia, lethal injection. And the reason is, is that they're people with disabilities and they, they literally do not have money to live uh, on the current disability rate, especially post-COVID with the great inflation we've had. And they're saying, but I qualify for an assisted death. So they're qualifying for an assisted death based on their disability, but they're saying the reason they're asking for it is actually because of poverty, homelessness, and inability to get medical treatment. All these reasons are piling up, and, and we've had quite a few deaths for those reasons alone. In fact, it's, it's becoming quite insane. Well, Alex, I mean, how can that be justified um, for cases, like you said, of, um, of poverty, but also PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, it yeah. seems to be uh, a reason as well. How, how right. The case of PTSD was particularly distressing because that was a Canadian uh, military veteran who had uh, served our country, who was going through PTSD, and he was seeking services for his PTSD, and the service uh, people from uh, from the, the, uh, the from the Ministry of Veterans Affairs told him, well, you can have medical aid in dying. Well, he didn't want medical aid in dying, and his story was even more acute in the fact that uh, at first, they said that, oh, he was just a one-off. It was the only case that had ever happened. And then they discovered, oh, well, there have been five cases and several people actually died by medical aid and dying after being told this. In this man's particularity, he went to the U.S. for treatment. Now, recently, we had another case come up of a woman who became disabled as a veteran. So she actually became a, a disability, a, a Paralympian. Um, and then when she was asking for help from uh, from uh, Veterans Affairs to put a wheelchair ramp in, they told her she could have medical aid and dying. So can you imagine that, how crass this is? These are the people, of course, served our country, and yet they're being told by the service providers, well, you can have medical aid and dying, as if that's uh, it's something to be offering people who served our country. That's unbelievable. In a recent blog, you wrote about a woman named Glenn, who's uh, Gwen, I'm sorry, who's seeking euthanasia because she can't get treatment for her medical problems. Why is it easier in Canada to be euthanized rather than get treatment that you need? 
See, the problem with the system is right off the bat, first of all, we allow killing, and now we allow killing for chronic conditions, and people with disabilities have chronic conditions. That's usually why they have a disability. They have a condition that's not getting better. That's how they live. That's how they are. And in the case of Gwen, she wasn't able to get the medical treatment she needed, and she lives in British Columbia. But she had no problem being approved for medical aid and dying. So the approval for medical aid and dying, that didn't take very long, no problem. She wants treatment. She can't get it. So she was talking about going to the U.S. for treatment, uh, and this is the kind of thing we're facing. Now, treatment issues are always a problem in Canada because we have universal health care, but on top of it, there's been a big backlog of treatment because of post-COVID issues and everything. But even further to that, people with disabilities often need specialized treatment, and if they can't get it, but they can get medical aid and dying, it seems, well, in fact, it's sort of ridiculous. You're going to kill somebody, and what they want is treatment, not death. It's unbelievable. Alex, I read about a, a woman, I think her name is Denise. She's 31 years old and she uses a wheelchair. She has multiple chemical sensitivities and yes. she was seeking assisted suicide when really she needed a clean place to live. She needed a, a wheelchair ramp. Um, so why is life so undervalued in Canada that it's just easier to kill than to help them stay alive? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said life is being undervalued in Canada. What happened is we originally legalized euthanasia, which is lethal injection, death by lethal injection. We originally legalized that based on someone having a terminal illness, but then it expanded to people with chronic conditions. So now you don't have to have a terminal illness. And so these people are getting approved for medical aid and dying. Now, this woman with multiple chemical sensitivities was living in poverty because she couldn't find a job. She was too sick to go out. And so therefore, uh, she was living in social housing where she was constantly having a difficult time living. Uh, the sad thing about her case, okay, so the nice thing about her story is uh, GoFundMe uh, group say, raised about $80,000 for her. So now she has a place to live where she can live. Whereas a woman who was 51 years old died by uh, by euthanasia, lethal injection, who also had MCS uh, because uh, there was no help that came her way. So it was very sad that that's, that's the sort of thing. All they need is a clean place to live, and instead what they get is lethal injection. It's it's really abandonment, you know, really, really abandoning people. Yes. Well, we have so much more we'd like to talk with you about, but we're running out of time. But before we say goodbye, would you please give us a quick update on Roger Foley? Well, Roger Foley is still in battle in the legal battle with the with the hospital. But I'm I'm also very concerned now in the U.S. because after this election, there's several states that are going to be debating assisted suicide. And I'm telling people, don't don't go there. Don't ever go there. Look at what's happening in Canada. Like just looking at the crazy things in Canada that are going on. Please do not be so crazy as to legalize assisted suicide. Let's say in Massachusetts and in Minnesota and all these states where they're debating it right now, or where they're going to be debating it soon. Uh, just don't go there. That's that's a, a crazy idea to be involved with killing people. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this uh, disturbing trend in Canada that seems to be uh, coming over the border to the U.S. as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. If the presidential election were held today, Ron DeSantis would be leading the potential 2024 matchup between he and Joe Biden. Although neither Biden nor the Florida governor are official candidates for the presidential race, the assumption is that both are running along with Donald Trump and other Republican presidential hopefuls. The survey from the Suffolk University and USA Today shows DeSantis would edge Biden 46.6% to 42.7%, with the pro-life governor leading the pro-abortion Democrat. Frustrated with the outcome of the midterm elections, the executive committee of, of the Texas GOP voted unanimously Saturday 
to call for new leadership at the National Party. By a vote of 62 to 0, the State Republican Executive Committee passed a resolution saying it had lost confidence in the chair of the Republican National Committee, Rona McDaniel. The resolution said she must be replaced, but did not endorse a challenger. The resolution said under Chairwoman McDaniel's leadership, the GOP lost both houses of Congress and the White House in 2020, and seriously underperformed in 2022 by further losing ground in the Senate and only barely winning a majority in the House, adding that new leadership is necessary to address deficiencies in fundraising, messaging, GOTV, and election integrity. McDaniel's re-election campaign responded to the Texas resolution with a statement emphasizing that her decision to seek another term was member-driven. Support for the chairwoman has only grown since her announcement, and she looks forward to speaking with each and every member to discuss how the party can continue building upon our investments and make the necessary improvements to compete and win in 2024, McDaniel's, McDaniel's spokesperson Emma Vaughn said in the statement. Candidates for two of Arizona's top offices had initial hearings in the, their election-related legal challenges Tuesday. Gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and Secretary of State candidate Mark Fitchum, both Republicans, believe they won the November 8th election and have asked judges to overturn the outcome. Official election results were certified on December 5th. The lawsuit filed by Lake, a former television news anchor, asks a judge to declare her the winner of the election, or at least order a recount of the vote in Maricopa County, where Lake claims issues with election equipment and long lines disenfranchised her voters. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs was declared the winner of the race by just 17,000 votes. She is set to take office on January 5th. Fincham's suit alleges the election was not fair or secure and asks the court to nullify the results. Residents in Rochester, New Hampshire, were intrigued but not exactly shocked when a State House of Representatives race ended in a deadlock last month. 970 votes cast for the incumbent Democrat and 970 for the Republican challenger. In the purplish state, where Rochester sits between the liberal southern seacoast and the more conservative Lakes region at its center, the tie only confirmed what people already knew. Their city of 30,000, like their country, is politically split. And like many Americans, they are trying to navigate the divide with a careful approach, keeping their views to themselves and attempting to get along. Last week, state legislators voted to send the tide race in Rochester's Ward 4, where there are about 3,000 voters back to the city for a special election, expected to be held in February. Both candidates said they are determined to prevail, though they dread the challenge of encouraging voter turnout in the frigid middle of a, new, of a long New Hampshire winter. It's going to be a tough slog, said David Walker, the Republican, a longtime city council member who challenged State Representative Chuck Grassi, a three-term Democrat. I can't see a lot of elderly people coming out in the cold, but you just have to knock on the doors and entice them. Stacy Horn, a high school social studies teacher, was planning a lesson about the tide race as she saw a chance to drive home a crucial point. When we talk about turnout and the reasons people don't vote, someone usually says, people feel like their vote doesn't count, she said. That's a perfect segue into the tie. 
You look at Ward 4 and see it's all about who shows up that day. And that's political news in a nutshell. Brad Mattis is the president of the Life Issues Institute, and last week he wrote a story on his website that carried the intriguing headline, Fatherhood Changes Men's Brains. We've invited Brad to come on to tell us how that happens and what it means. Welcome, Brad. Well, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate, appreciate well, we always, being with you. Sorry, sorry. Brad. Well, let's, we're going to start again. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought you'd... I didn't you realize you just took a breath. <laughs> Don't breathe too long, Brad. <laughs> Sorry. Jump in if you do. Brad Mattis is the president of the Life Issues Institute, and last week he wrote a story on his website that carried the intriguing headline, Fatherhood Changes Men's Brains. We've invited Brad to come on to tell us how that happens and what it means. Welcome, Brad. Thanks for having me on. I always enjoy being on with you guys. Oh, we appreciate it. And before we get to men's brains, uh, tell us about the research from a few years back on how women's brains change during pregnancy. Yes. Well, that research is even uh, very recent, just in the last year or so. But what they did is they used MRI imaging to look at a woman's brain before and after she gave birth. And the differences physically were so significant that they can look at MRIs and tell whether or not a woman has given birth. It's just amazing. And part of what this involves is her ability to uh, take care of her baby. It, it uh, enhances the neural pathways and synapses as a result of her taking care of the baby her brain literally physically responds to the need that she has taking care of her infant. Isn't that cool? That's wow. That's wow. incredible. <laughs> so now there's new information about men's brains. Please tell us about that. Sure. And uh, this, this is kind of a hoop because who would have expected that a man's brain would physically be impacted because of fatherhood, but it is. Uh, there's budding research that was just done it was uh, published in, a, in something that I'm sure everyone subscribes to called Cerebral Cortex in the September issue. And what this research does is they recruited 20 men from Southern California, 20 men from Madrid, Spain, and then they had a control group of fathers or fatherless men. And they took MRIs of the men's brains during pregnancy, and then after the baby was six months old. They followed the same regimen with the fatherless uh, men, and they found, again, physical differences, significant physical differences and changes in the brains that the fatherless men did not have. And these involved the cortex that controls, you know, visual processing, attention, and empathy toward the baby. So, in similar ways, uh, they are affected. A past research has shown hormonal changes that impact a father's attitudes and actions as a result of pregnancy. So uh, this also correlates, there was a subtle difference between the Madrid fathers and the American fathers, because in Spain, they have a generous uh, uh, policy of letting the fathers stay home with their children and thus they had more activity. So their changes in their brain was more 
enhanced than the subtle changes of the American men, which indicated less activity with their infant. It's just amazing research uh, that I'm sure we'll see more coming down the pike. But, you know, it just goes to show that, that being a father changes your world. And now we're learning with this science just how far reaching that change is. And it's underscoring, ladies, the importance and impact of an intact family unit because uh, a child's birth and infancy physically impacts the brains of both parents. It's amazing. Um, we're kind of interested. I'm sure this will develop more and we'll want to hear more about it. But on the other hand, then, how does abortion impact uh, these changes in the brains for men and women? Well, unfortunately, we don't have comparable research or that I'm aware of anyway, but we do know uh, there are significant ways that the brains are impacted. With men, the research that I've done and, and read elsewhere um, shows that men were created by our creator with an innate desire to provide for and protect our offspring. Women were brains were wired with that nurturing aspects, which is a, a common thing that most everybody agrees to. And when an abortion takes place, um, there is a growing body of evidence, especially for women, less so with men, that that plays a, a devastating impact on the psyche, conscience, and uh, thought process of parents who lose a child to abortion. You know, just as they lose a child to abortion, is the same type of emotion and, and issues that they go through if they lost a child in infancy, in toddler, or even teenage years. Well, this is really interesting stuff, but unfortunately, we're just about out of time. So I want to thank you for coming on with us, Brad, and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Brad. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us for our upcoming special shows. On December 23rd, we will have a special Christmas show. Be sure to join us on the 30th for the year in review. Both will be at our regular time of 9 p.m. Eastern time. We hope you will support this show in all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, our daily masses, and Father Frank's broadcasts by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. Do you have an idea for a story for us? Are you someone whose baby was saved because of the help of a sidewalk counselor? Would you like to expose something in the abortion industry? Then please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.